One of the things I try to dismantle when I'm working with folks early on is the idea that diversity is not a problem to be solved. It's a strategic advantage to be leveraged. Let's move from sheer virtue to virtue and value. Because if it's if it's just virtue, if it's the right thing to do, then if you are a member of a dominant group, whether that's male or white or able-bodied or cisgendered, whichever group sort of sits in the place of power, if it's strictly virtue, then you are being virtuous by allowing someone else to engage or be involved. And that experience is still passive because you're not learning. There's no exchange going on, right? But if it's not a problem to be solved, but a strategic advantage to be leveraged, and if I'm somebody that's trying to do good in the world, goods, products, services, whatever it is, for-profit, non-profit, doesn't matter, I think what I'm doing matters, then I need to be informed, I need to be inclusive, I need to know what I don't know, I need to have people around me that are thinking differently, all those things that come with diversity. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey friends, today Hannah and I got to sit down for a powerful conversation with Dr. Ed Barron. He's an accomplished organizational consultant, diversity, equity, and inclusion leader, and executive coach with over 30 years of experience. The three of us reflect on Dr. Ed's experience and expertise in this space and the work that he does to help nonprofits, higher education institutes, and complex organizations transform their strategy and culture. In simple terms, he helps companies be better so they can do better. Dr. Ed recently led a training for the on-site team, and Hannah and I both share how it challenged and inspired us in a variety of ways concerning our understanding of psychological safety and our role in owning the culture and strategy that makes room for all voices at the table. I was so challenged by this training, and I was also so honored to get to talk a little bit more about it with Dr. Ed in person. As I share in this interview, I can personally feel clumsy with topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I want to be someone committed to learning and growing and leaning in to the conversations that I know will help me. And I'm so grateful for conversations like this one. I'm grateful for Dr. Ed for both his expertise and passion and the way he humanizes hard conversations and topics while challenging us all to do better. We were so excited to talk to Dr. Ed that we basically just jumped right into the conversation and then had to back up a little bit. So I'm so excited for you to get to know Dr. Ed a little bit more today. Well, Dr. Ed, I am so excited to be chatting with you today. And I'm excited, probably equally as excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Hannah and I actually snuck her in on this because I will let her share a little bit about her experience with you and uh, her familiarity. But we're both really um, just impressed and challenged. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about uh, the lunch and learn that you led our team through probably about a month or two ago. Um, And you talked about the concept of psychological safety. And I think the way that you defined it has really continued to ruminate in my mind. So I'd love to start there. Uh, What is your definition of psychological safety? Yeah, if I recall, uh, Mackenzie, and hello, Hannah, glad you're here. Hi, right. uh, Hannah, so glad to be here with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I remember the context, we were we we're making a bit of a distinction between providing a safe space, which is a space where, at least as it's been popularly defined, is a space where people aren't, they aren't triggered, they're safe to be themselves, and, 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 and those are 
those are probably great spaces if you can find them. Psychological safety is different, right? It's providing an environment that that not only allows, it invites the whole person to show up. And so uh, whatever your intersectionality is, right, your gender, your, your, your race, uh, political views, uh, you know that that's a place that's probably void of judgment, mm-hmm. not critical thought and questions, because that's how we learn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But psychological safety is a place where people can kind of feel like they can plug in, belong. There's a sense of, there's a sense of cohesiveness there, not steeped in agreement that everybody agrees, but that those kinds of spaces are okay for us to sort of explore and emerge. And so quite the difference when you think about the topics that might come up and the ways in which they might be addressed versus maybe a situation that's wrought with hesitancy and tentativeness and concern with whether or not we're going to mess up. Granted, we should all take care in our communication, but psychological safety is different. Yeah. I love that. Um, I wrote down when you came, so you came to talk to us specifically about how to create psychological safety for uh, minorities, minority mm-hmm. groups, um, specifically on our staffs and also with clients. And what you said that I wrote down is psychological safety is the belief that you won't be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. And I think that's such a unique distinction. Um, I think we live in a culture that really values safety and I, I do too. I love um, feeling mm-hmm. safe. But I know we've all been in, in environments where we weren't psychologically safe and uh, it's probably a, a fewer number of us who have been in environments that are genuinely psychologically safe, yeah. but I think that was such an important shift for me instead of just like, oh, I feel safe to, oh, is this actually safe? Mm. Um, Is it just my perception of I want it to feel this way because that feels familiar? Because I think sometimes we mistake familiarity with safety of like, oh, this feels familiar, so this must be safe for me. But your actual foundation of safety is can we explore ideas? Can we bring difference? Can I bring up questions? And will I know Mm. that that is welcome to even be present here? Like like you said, that we don't all have to align, but can those things exist here? Yeah, yeah. So, so, So good. It's you're making me think, Hannah, too, that sometimes there's a conflating of the ideas of safety and comfort. Oh, yeah. Am, mm-hmm. am, I, am I comfortable, right, void of being disturbed? And I, I think I want to add, too, that the psychological in front of psychological safety uh, talks about sort of the, the, the mental load that we carry when we're not safe, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, like, the, uh, it's like this cognitive load where we're thinking about it and waiting for it, anticipating it all, all the while, if we're in that frame of mind, we're not present. Right. We're not receiving because we're so loaded. And so the idea of psychological safety says there's this sort of calm and awareness and consciousness and presence that we bring, which is, you know, the only way to get to the real part of us if those things are intact, right? Yeah, that's good. Uh, not to get super psychological for a second but in polyvagal theory that talks about how when you're in ventral vagal you access those qualities of being calm curious connected Mm -hmm. all those things that you were just saying and and you were also saying when we have when we're unpsychologically safe we go into either fight or flight and we can't Mm -hmm. access those things and so we can't be curious we can't yeah approach difference i guess because we're we're constantly in a state of like how do i protect myself so i thought that was really interesting that you brought that up yeah, and, it, and it, it, it really impedes, it has the potential to, to impede cognitive function. You're making me think, so we're geeking out here, right? So it makes me think yeah. about a, a stereotype threat theory, which was popularized by a researcher named 
Claude Steele at Stanford years ago, I think this theory really dealt with when somebody that is a part of a group or culture that has a prevailing stereotype about them. Yeah. When they're, when they're in spaces and they fear that that stereotype is going to be invoked. So, for mm-hmm. instance, girls aren't good at math. Yeah. Black men aren't articulate. Whatever the case might be. When we're in a place where, we, where we're afraid that that stereotype is going to be imposed, even if it's not, just the threat of it coming up interferes with our cognitive functioning. So much so that we begin to perform our, our intellectual performance decreases. And so Dr. Steele proved this in experiment after experiment in an academic environment. And, you know, the the point being, yeah, psychological safety, true, but also to make sure that people are seeing themselves in the education environment through the, uh, through the lectures, through the materials, through the speakers and all those kinds of things that creates a sense of belonging. So all those things kind of work together to help us understand the importance of psychological safety. Yeah, one of the words you used was contribution, and you said, you know, your ability to contribute. And I just think we had a a podcast guest a couple weeks ago who was talking about the role that contribution and making a contribution to the world um, has on our understanding of ourself, our self-compassion, and even even into the way that we, like, live and exist in our current reality. Um, And he was connecting it to, like, depression and suicide. And I just think when you were talking about that, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, that, like, that weight and what what happens when you live in an environment where you are constantly under the stereotype um, threat, like you were saying, and how do we then not be able to contribute to the world and what are the extra, extra effects that are we're not even talking about? So absolutely, absolutely. You know, and, and we all we all lose out, right? It's uh Yeah. Uh, and I and I put contribution in there particularly because it's not that people are in every environment just to sort of receive or learn or grow, that yeah. receiving and learning and growing is only enhanced when there are a number of contributors to that, right? And then mm-hmm. if, we're con- if we're contributing, we feel like we are a valid part of a larger whole. So in essence, psychological safety opens a pathway for, for humanization, to be fully mm-hmm. human, right? So if if exclusion dehumanizes, then inclusion in psychologically safe environments sort of rehumanizes. It sees mm-hmm. us as being valid participants in this thing called life and tremendously mm-hmm. interdependent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that because you just took us back to the basics. I think yeah. concepts like psychological safety or we, we just nerded out on a bunch of stuff and it can sound yeah. really heavy. Um, And I like that you just kind of stripped it down to say like, oh, this actually is just rehumanizing this process. So I think before we continue to to nerd out on a bunch of things, we've talked on a a lot in a few short minutes. But (laughs) can we get to know, Dr. Ode, I jumped right in. Yeah, yeah. Let's get to know you for a second. You clearly are so knowledgeable about so many things that we've even briefly discussed, uh, like psychology and education and leadership and organizations and such. And so can you take us back? Who are you? Give us a brief snapshot of who you are, how you got to where you are, and kind of what you're passionate about. Wow. Well, Hannah, when you get to be of my stature in life, I won't say age, it's hard to be brief because there's so much to cover. Okay. Keep it long form. I, I will I will just say that um, I've had the opportunity in my life to do a variety of things from a professional standpoint, uh, all of which shaped me, informed me, and informed me. And uh, my first 
career after college was in the aerospace engineering industry, where I learned a lot about systems and interaction and process and the importance of measurement. Yeah, I I was actually on the team that uh, designed and built and installed the first radar system or the radar system for the first B-2 stealth bomber. What? So before the world knew that there was a stealth bomber, because it was a secret program, I was on the team that did design, testing, building, and delivery of the first radar system in uh, in the stealth bomber. Uh, worked on a bunch of other projects with that company as well. Uh, spent time in the nonprofit space, mm. in the in the religious nonprofit space, um, uh, doing kind of large event kinds of organizations and things like that. Organization uh, education as well. I've been a faculty member. I've been a department chair. Is that how you guys know each other? Yes. That 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 is where actually our paths initially crossed. And that's yeah, right. Thank you for yeah. pausing that, Mackenzie. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, so I have got to witness uh, Dr. Ed kind of from afar for a while. Uh, you were on staff on faculty at the school that I went to, and um, we didn't cross a lot um, personally, but just so Mackenzie asked kind of how I knew you and what I admired about you, and I mentioned that both what I've witnessed in you personally and professionally, I've seen... Um, you navigate a lot of I've seen you guys I've seen you navigate adversity and personal growth um, met in the intersection of a lot of different things that matter. I've seen you have to meet personal and professional things that matter and just seeing how you've been able to navigate that with such grace and resilience has really been inspirational to me but I've learned a lot just watching you um at the intersectionality of psychology and leadership I think that's where I've seen the most from you both personally and professionally and so I think that's why we're so excited to continue to talk to you today because I think you bring so much in both of those fields well that's so so interesting and thank you Hannah because that's that's a validation of the things that are most important to me in life I've always had for as long as I can remember a fascination with what I'll call integration, how things go together. Hmm. I've also had a fascination with improvement. So not only how things go together, but how do you make something better? Um, uh, you know, as a kid, I used to love to mow the lawn, not because I like physical manual labor, but I like to see how things improve, how it got better, and then stand back and watch the result of your finished product. Uh, also interesting, the academic department and the grad school that I chaired was leadership and organizational psychology. So I felt that at that time in my life, my passions were merging and I got a chance to look at it from a theoretical perspective as well, right? From the from the academic literature. And now practicing as a consultant, helping organizations to understand integration and improvement cycles gives me great joy to be able to do that. Um, but perhaps my greatest accomplishment that I just still can't believe it's been a part of my experience is being a father to my two daughters, Dr. Jessica Barron and uh, Brittany Barron, AKA Beans, Mm -hmm. uh, who are just phenomenal. And my daughter in love as well, Sammy Cromlin. They're the loves of my life. They challenge me. They keep me going. They inspire me. Um, They are making impacts and we'll probably get around to to talking about this at some point in time, but, but they are the reason I visited onsite in the first place. I love that. I love that they were included in your bio, too. You had this, like, very impressive bio, and then you were like, and also the loves of my life. Like, it just was so yeah. beautiful. And I think 
so much of what we're talking about is humanizing and showing up as our whole selves. And I am so yeah. grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. I also would argue that you wouldn't be the psychological leader, the organizational leader, the consult that you are uh, without being first a good dad. I think so much of what we say at OnSite is uh, you become a better fill in the blank. You become a better leader. You become a better parent. You become a better whatever by becoming a better human first. And I think that's why we care so much about emotional health. Um, And so I love that. And that really, I, and that's what I, I mean when I've seen that, not even knowing you up close, but seeing you kind of from afar, both personally and professionally, I see that who you show up as Dr. Ed, maybe more, it's just, just Ed, strip away the doctor title, even who you show up as Ed um, really informs how you, parent how you lead how you uh now help other people step into and lead better organizationally and so the ripple effects of that is just so so massive um and that's something we clearly care about so much at on site oh thank you thank you yeah if you wouldn't mind would you mind sharing a little bit about kind of your experience or understanding of on site oh yeah yeah so i only hesitate because it's it's uh i've said about my experience at on site that prior to onsite, that I had never had a transformational experience that even got close. So you all have heard me say this before. So this isn't mm-hmm. for the benefit of our listeners today, because you all yeah. know that I've said this before. And and there are myriad reasons why. But let me talk about where I was sort of emotionally and um, mentally leading up to my time uh, at my initial visit, because I've been twice, my initial visit to onsite. Just uh, going through a lot of things in life, professionally and maritally and uh, relationally, that I was thought I was managing well because, as the proverbial uh, frog in the in the pot of boiling water, I don't know if that's just fiction or not. But anyway, we'll use the analogy, yeah. right? Yeah. That the boil is so slow that you acclimate and that you adapt. And yes. then you die, right? And so I think <laughs> I was I was in that acclimating and adapting, but not really able to see that for myself, having some awareness of it. But my girls saw it. My girls, my, my daughters saw it pretty mm. clearly. And um, mm. Brittany had just come from a creative writing seminar where one of the speakers there talked about his experience at OnSite. Right. Mm. The creative conference she went to had nothing to do with onsite. <laughs> but this guy was so impacted by his experience at onsite, he started talking about it. Mm. And um, my daughter's sitting there in the audience thinking, boy, my dad needs to hear about this. She came home and she shared with me. And, you know, to be honest with you, I thought, sounds interesting. Sounds cool. Glad you thought it was applicable. I'll, I'll give it. I'll give it due consideration, which was really like the ultimate brush off, right? Um, <laughs> fast, fast forward about a year, I came back to her and said, "I'm. I want to know more about um, this this place you were talking about." Donald Miller was was in fact the person that was talking about on site. Yeah, I went on and bought. Awesome. I, I bought. I bought Donald Miller's book, and I think it was chapter five. He talks about his experience at on site, which is really close, cool. Yeah. Scary close, right? 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 And um, so both girls, in fact, all three girls, my daughter in love as well, uh, sponsored me uh, to mm-hmm. come to OnSite. And um, I get emotional just thinking about it yeah. because of the sacrifice that they made. Because they, and they've been, by the way, 
They've never been to onsite. Right. So yeah. whatever, whatever, whatever Donald Miller said, you all need to can it. Right. Thank you, Donald. Put it on, yeah. put it on leaflets. I don't know what he said, but it was powerful. Right. And um, so they sent me to um, uh, Living Centered. Mm-hmm. Um, and my experience there is in some ways indescribable. It's because, you know, experience can be passed on at best verbally, audibly, and visibly in terms of how it may have changed or impact you that people observably, if you could say, yeah. but all three of those kind of come up short to the real transformational interpersonal experience with wonderful guides that whole space for you to process things that perhaps you weren't even altogether sure you needed to process. Yeah. And, per- and perhaps the magic, if I can use that word in a non-mystical way, the magic of watching, of being audience to others yeah. go through mm-hmm. their trans- transformative process, the honor of being in a room, seeing somebody do work that's changing their life. If you weren't compassionate to begin with, if you weren't empathetic to begin with, if you weren't engaging to begin with, all of those things will change for you significantly. Uh, through an experience with, in my case, living, the Living Centered program. That's why I say up until that point, I had not had any transformational experience that rivaled that. Mm. And, and by the way, I'm considering education writ large to be yeah. a transformational experience, right? K-12, right. higher ed. So I'm putting that in the in the mix as well, right? Yeah, yeah the most transformational experience uh, I've ever, I've ever had. Hey, podcast listeners. If you have been listening for very long, you probably already know about Onsite's in-person experience from which we derive our name. But maybe you don't know that you can now experience the Living Center program on both our Tennessee and California campuses. We have got dates throughout the summer and we're so excited to be offering it more often throughout 2022. If you want to learn more about this unique program, our admissions team would love to connect with you. You can email us at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com or give them a call at 800-341-7432. As Dr. Ed shares in this episode, the Living Centered program was transformational for him, and I'd love for you to hear a little bit more from him. So if you want to hear his story, we have linked a video in the show notes of today's episode where he talks about the impact of the Living Center program on his life a little bit more. Without further ado, let's get back to this awesome interview with Dr. Ed. I am just so grateful um, that you shared that and we're willing to kind of share a little bit of your experience. And I think I remember hearing you share a little bit about that at another time when you came back to our campus and were a part of a program. But I remember thinking, oh, but he's had a lot of these experiences. Like he's he's in this field. He understands it. You know, you are an emotional intelligence guy. Like it was so cool to hear you put words to some of that. But I think what I was struck the most by that I hadn't known is the sacrifice um, and even the willingness for your girls to come to you and say, hey, I see this in you and I'm calling you to more. I'm, I, I love you and I don't feel like you're operating at your best and, and how hard it is when the people in our lives do that. Like I've had moments in my life when my partner's done that for me. I've had p- opportunities where I've done that for other people and it's really risky relationally. Yes. Um, and then it's really risky to lean in and say, okay, I hear you and I'm going to do something about it. So at that moment, like... What prompted you 
to not only hear it and receive it because you were the frog in the water and we don't know what we don't know. Right, and right. what was the impact um, on your family after you went and did that work? Yeah, it's a great question. I, You know, looking back, it was the, the perfect confluence of courage and humility, right? Courage mm-hmm. on the part of my daughter and a modicum of humility for me to say, even though it was a year delayed, yeah, this is something I want to move into. That's the retrospective view. I think the things that had to be in place, honestly, were kind of coming full circle, mm-hmm. that there was that there was psychological safety that was yeah. forged, that was mm-hmm. forged by not just a, a moment of saying, you know, we're going to challenge our dad to, you know, raise his game. No, there there had been a history of that uh, yeah. mutually yeah. in our in mm-hmm. our family for years of of uh, raising our raising our girls to have a voice and saying uh, to their mom that you know we may not we may not like what we hear from them sometimes, but the, let's keep our eye on the prize. That the main thing is that they're exercising their voice. Yeah, and so as you watch these young apprentices right emerge in their self efficacy you begin to trust those voices. Mm, you begin good. to trust that they are observant, that they mm-hmm. are dialed in, that they do care. And so when when she came to me, it wasn't with trepidation. It wasn't with, right. I got to work up the nerve. Um, so that was, a, it, I say courage because that's the way it seemed, but it was courage right. forged over yeah. years of relationship, right? And um, as someone raising a girl who I hope just feels empowered to use her voice, I'm taking all the notes. Like I just, yeah. oh, please, <laughs> I love that. please, we can have a yeah. whole different podcast on <laughs> empowering. And I don't even like to, I'm not even sure I like to use empowering when it comes to yeah. developing and helping girls and women emerge fully, right? Because they're yeah. fully um, human and they have power and all those kinds of things. And I'm a girl dad, right? And so yeah. I've watched these amazing amazingly intelligent and beautiful and articulate and talented women continue to make their way in the world and so their voices matter to me their voices matter to me and you don't know what you don't know but i had already started practicing some meditation Mm -hmm. and some mindfulness so i knew there were things that i was compartmentalizing to say the least I knew that there were some things that I was possibly minimizing, if you will, mm-hmm. but was mm-hmm. convinced I was managing those things well enough. So yeah. you may not know, but once you get a glimpse, you recognize mm-hmm. right? yeah, that, that those things are those things are are authentic. And and since then, um, they are probably so tired of me talking about onsite because I talk about <laughs> my experience all the time. Um, I think that the difference that it has made, and I'll, I'll stay general with this because everybody's story yeah. is everybody's story, uh, is, is the, the clarity that, um, that I received in my life and my decisions that brought clarity to our familial life mm-hmm. that resulted in some decisions that were for the best ultimately, but hard to work through. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, Mackenzie, it's it, it it may be what keeps people in the pot, because right. if you have some idea of of what turning the light switch on might reveal, mm-hmm. you could choose to leave the light off, and yeah. hope you can navigate well enough without stubbing your toe, tripping over the sofa, whatever the metaphor is. Yeah. And I 
I, I just didn't think that was, I think I was made for more. Mm, I love that distinction. And, and I was right. I, I, I am made for more and I'm realizing that as well. Yeah. There's a responsibility that comes with, with choosing any of this work that we talk about and, you know, it's vulnerable, it's risky. And also yeah. you get a choice of what to do with it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think we're all made for more. I love that. Something that stuck out to me when you were sharing about your experience is that you kept using the word experience, that it was a transformational experience. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we can dive into kind of the parallel of some of the importance around experience when it comes to transformational things such as diversity. Yeah. Um, I think about like how you knew, Mackenzie said you were, you were in this EQ field, you knew, you know about emotional intelligence, you know about psychology, but you kind of needed an experience to put you into the work. Um, And I think also when we talk about things like diversity, there's a lot of times that we talk about it or we can have good intentions or say the right things. And I'm wondering how experience is interwoven into diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially in culture. You're an expert on culture and workplace and all of that. But how is there kind of a parallel between hopefully what, what we do it on site and putting people into the experience of work, it's not just talking about it. It's, it's, you even said experiencing other people's work yeah. um, allowed yeah. you to heal your own stuff and get a greater understanding of empathy and all of that. Um, so how does the experience of doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work kind of thrust you into the process and help you look yeah. at it? Yeah. Question, yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a great question. So, so let's consider for a moment, let's lay down a principle that, that learning and development, real learning and development, really require, let's call them two ingredients that are very similar. And if you were to create a Venn Venn diagram, they overlap quite a bit. They are experience and engagement. Mm. So you can have an experience and be sort of passive in that experience, sort of observing. Mm -hmm. But to the extent that you're having that experience and and the engagement is high, Mm-hmm. That's kind of the seedbed for this learning development or what we're calling transformation. Yeah. So whenever you can you can pair a theory, idea, opportunity with the chance to, ex- to, to have some experience yourself, participate in a non-passive way, so in an active way, an engaged mm-hmm. way, then you stand a chance, a better chance to have some kind of transformational learning experience. That's good. Mm-hmm. Where that's important with diversity, and, and this is... One of the things I try to dismantle when I'm working with folks early on is the idea that diversity is not a problem to be solved. It's a strategic advantage to be leveraged. Let's, let's, move, let's move from sheer virtue to virtue mm-hmm. and value. Because mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's just virtue, if it's the right thing to do, then if you are a member of a, of a dominant group, whether that's male or white or able-bodied or cisgendered, wh- wh- whichever group... Yeah sort of sits in the place of power, if it's strictly virtue, then you are being virtuous by allowing someone else to engage or be involved. And that's and that experience is still passive because you're not learning. Right. There's no exchange going on, right? But if it's not a problem to be solved, but a strategic advantage to be leveraged, and if I'm somebody that's trying to do good in the world, goods, products, services, whatever it is, for-profit, non-profit, doesn't matter. I think what I'm doing matters then I need to be informed. I need to be inclusive. I need to know what I don't know. I need to have people around me that are thinking differently. All those things that come with diversity. Mm-hmm. 
And so the experience might be examine your 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 entertainment choices. If you're listening mm-hmm. to podcasts already, maybe you want to tune into some podcasts that that offer some different perspectives or come from different different voices, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, examine your relational circle. Who's 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 truly in your circle? That's I, I call them the people that eat dinner with you in your home, by the way, not out at a restaurant. Not out and where, about. <laughs> not out and about in, in your home. So examine your relational circles. Challenge your comfort zone. The comfort zone, in my definition, can only move in one direction, and that's smaller and smaller and smaller. Comfort mm-hmm. comfort zones don't grow. They get tighter and tighter and tighter by definition. So expand your your comfort, right? Get out of your comfort zone, in fact, right? Break it. So there's a number of things that you can do, but experiencing means that now I am getting to know someone about someone about something. Now it's no more, it's no longer mysterious and it's no longer the other. What, what I find interesting is um, whoever the other is in your life, whatever marginalized group that that person may belong to, as soon as you meet someone from that marginalized group, they are no longer the other. Mm-hmm. Re- rehumanize. Mm-hmm. That's the value of experience and engagement. Yeah, I find that that's, uh, thank you for saying that. That's so much, oftentimes what we hear is that is single-handedly the most transformational part about an on-site experience. And I know from my experience, yeah. a lot of that is, is it's the group experience of you're thrown into a group of people who maybe don't act like you or look like you or come from a place like you. Um, you don't talk about what you do during that time. You kind of strip away these titles, accolades that we often hold to. And we just get to show up as who we are, who we were as kids and who we are today um, and to learn from each other. And it, it really humanizes people. For me, it, it reminded me that it's really impossible to hate someone when you're up close. Yep. When you oh, yeah. are, when you know somebody, you are, you're human. So you empathize, you That's right. um, extend grace, you extend compassion, you see yourself in them. And I think that's such yeah. a huge part of the, of the human experience. Yeah, for sure. You, you maybe think about something else too, Hannah, the experience. I mean, it's such a great sort of archetype of, of bringing disparate people together in Imagine what it takes to be in these small groups doing this, doing psychodrama and, you know, playing roles and all those kinds of things and and to be able to stick with it. Because from the outside, you would think, yeah, I'm good for a half a day in a situation like that. And I'm out. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. But the thing that holds us together Mm -hmm. and the thing that holds you together in a corporate situation as well is common cause. So think about the people in a group at onsite that have come there and finally reconciled that I'm going to, I'm going to work on being the best version of me that I can, of Mm -hmm. being a better human. And the other six, seven, eight people in that room have the same goal. And it's, it's, it's got enough gravitational pull to do just that, to keep pulling you and pulling you and pulling you even to the point where, you get discouraged or you are ashamed or whatever the emotion you feel, you stay dialed in because of the power of common cause. If you're thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging in the workplace, number one, your aspirations aren't going to succeed if all you're trying to do is 
is tamp down problems. But if you're really committed to the advantage that can be had by diversity towards something that's even greater, the common yeah. cause of being the best provider of, supplier of, purveyor of, so that the world can be a better place as a result. If we're really committed to that and the DEI strategies are directed towards that, that's when you have true sustainability. Hmm. So when the news cycle changes, right? Yeah. And another headline co-ops, whatever headline got you fired up in the first place, you right. won't stop. You won't stop because right. you've made the connection. Hmm. That's good. Well, I think I love that you talk about it being competitive advantage because so often we think mm-hmm. about, I think there's stereotypes or there is an understanding that, okay, diversity is neutral at best, but the additive nature of that I think is one, I've seen it be true, but two, I think it's it's countercultural. But I would like to take it a little bit further. And when we talk about just diversity, why can't we just stop at diversity? What is the importance of equity and inclusion in this conversation? Yeah, yeah. Those are the kinds of questions that all leaders should be asking. Yeah. Right. Diversity, I like to, I like to define diversity, first of all. Diversity just is. Mm. It just is. When you get a group of people together, diversity exists right. in some form, right? Mm-hmm. In gender, in thought, in religion, in experience, no and expression. No yeah. matter how seemingly homogenous, diversity yes. exists. So yeah. it's important then to define diversity that you are trying to improve, increase, reach, or whatever, right? If it's mm. ethnic race diversity, if it's diversity in experience, etc. So don't be afraid to be specific about diversity. Now, you will hear the comment that, well, we need more diverse people, Uh, diverse people uh, being a a proxy for people of color. No, people of color aren't diverse people. People of color are people. (laughs) There's no no such thing as diverse people. So so talk about we need LGBTQ plus. We need, uh, you know, um, people that are, are cognitively or physically disabled, whatever the case might be. So it's good for organizations to be clear on what they're talking about. It's othering language just to say diverse people. I think I, oh. I just made that connection just sitting yeah. here in this conversation for someone to say, well, we need diversity or we need diverse people. Yeah. Then diversity to what? Like what is what are you comparing to then? Yeah. Again, this is this is where we're living, right? Because yeah. you hear these, mm-hmm. I, I hear these I hear these comments. And again, I'm a hard person to take offense, so I don't get offended. People are where they are. Find out where somebody yes. is, yep. where they want to go, and facil- facilitate exactly. That's, that's the kind of work you all do, right? Inclusion, well, let me do equity first. Equity is the measurable outcome. So, so the reason that you're, that you're, hopefully, the reason that you are pursuing diversity in part is to produce more of an equitable outcome, whether mm-hmm. that be in the composition of your teams, in the compensation of your executives, in the rewards of your, or whatever the case might be. So equity, not equality, there's a difference, right? Equality means that uh, there's sort of an equal distribution of whatever it is that's being distributed. Yeah. Equity says there's a proportional distribution of whatever's being distributed, proportionate based on the amount of need. So, Everybody needs training. Everybody's going to get training. Okay, but we recognize that there's a group of people that 
that that never had a chance or mm-hmm. their training their their foundation was deficient or they had no foundation you got to you got to bring that thing up to the point where the playing field is even so that's what right. equity is about inclusion is more than just everybody has a voice uh you when you think about I'll give you an example my daughters have been uh, have experiences of being in a room where they may be the only female in the room and the participation that they get asked to partake in is, hey, sweetheart, would you mind taking notes? Mm-hmm. Because that's the role that we see. So the inclusion is a different mindset of no, everybody's in that in that room for a reason, or at least they should be, whatever the goal of the meeting is or the summit or whatever. And to make sure being intentional that we provide on ramps for everyone's participation equally. Now, when I say equally, it doesn't mean that everybody has to speak, but the right. opportunities are there. It mm-hmm. also means if I'm in a meeting setting, it also means, huh, I, I, you know, this whole meeting, I haven't heard from McKinsey. I wonder what she's sitting with and being able to say, McKinsey, what are you sitting with? Right. And then there are decision making frameworks and creative frameworks, all these frameworks that we have to make sure that we don't allow the momentum of the past and the way that we've always done things to rule the day and just to continue to do them. Right. Uh, cross-functional teams, sort of interactive. Inter, inter, there's a word I'm looking for. I can't read it. Edit this out, please. But whatever. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's a way in which we just don't relegate participation based on function. Right. Oh, we're, we're doing this, so only the catering team is involved. Or yeah. we're really working out how we do the workshops on, you know, with um, uh, Living Centered. So only the guides. Well, no, the hospitality team plays a big role in that. Yeah. Right. So it's a different way of thinking that increases sort of the creative quotient or the possibility thereof because we're inclusive. So mm-hmm. let's put the whole package together. Diversity just is. And so if you if you're if for some reason you've been motivated to deal with diversity, be specific in what you're dealing with. What are you trying to increase, decrease, leverage? Be specific about it. I'm not talking about quotas, just be specific in terms of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we talk about equity, uh, that should be your why. Mm. It really should be your why. Mm-hmm. Because there is inequity in some area. And we know that not just by hiring more people, but by being inclusive in our mindsets and in our practices, we can get at that thing. So that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. One quick uh, anecdotal story. I was, uh, I was talking with... Um, one of the attendees at one of my trips to onsite and the subject of diversity came up and this individual was so excited because they had just launched a, um, I don't know, a DEI program at their, at their company. And I, I, I thought, I said, Oh, I said, well, why now? And the person said, well, uh, I know exactly how my leader would respond to that because and he would say it's the right thing to do. And I said, okay. I said, well, was it the right thing to do last week? Was it the right thing to do a week, a year ago? Was it the right thing to do two years ago? So if it's the right thing today, it's probably been the right thing since 1619, right. if you get my drift, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so, so the question is, and, and, and for me to prompt their thinking, why now? Mm-hmm. And you got to be clear on your why now. It's the Simon Sinek, right? It's the golden circle as to why it makes it important. That's huge. I love all of this. And I, I feel like uh, I'm so grateful that you 
invite us all to see this as an opportunity. Yeah. And that's why I love that you even highlight again that it, it's a, an advantage for us to be leaning into us being all of us, but companies we're a part of, mm-hmm. groups we're a part of, communities we're a part of to be leaning into these type of conversations. So I really love that you're positioning an invitation for us to that this is an advantage for us to lean into. And I think that's the same when I look at a parallel to emotional health work is that it's an mm-hmm. advantage to us. I think so many people think of emotional health work or uh, DEI work as almost like they have to. Um, yeah. or like I'm broken that's why I'm doing my emotional health work or something's messy or like we just we gotta fix that and I think unfortunately people approach DEI sometimes that way too it's just like oh that's messy we gotta fix it instead of as an invitation yeah. to like there's actually more here for us yep. <laughs> this is better for us um, this is yeah. better for everyone if we lean into these things both diversity and emotional health and our, our mission here at OnSite is to design and deliver transformational experiences that optimize life and build meaning and value into the human experience. And that's really what I'm seeing in both of these things is that there's more. And I love that even that you said that personally, when you went to onsite and you did your experience, you experienced that there's more for you as a professional. There's more for you as a dad. There's more for you as a human. Um, And so I think that's kind of what I'm taking away from all of these ties is that when we kind of lead into what can think about as hard or as uncomfortable, but when we have the psychologically safe environments to be able to lean into those things, we can get more out of life. We can optimize and we can build meaning and value into all the things that we're doing. Yeah. 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 I, I, I am a firm believer that there is value in diversity. Yeah. And I'm not, com- I'm not commercializing it. I'm not providing a false incentive. There just is. And all the research, any research, that's been peer reviewed, that stands all the tests of research, concludes that things just get better with diversity. Whether it is innovative cycles, whether it is participation, whether it is engagement, doesn't matter. Things improve. Yep. Number one. So I'm a firm believer. Number two is to get business leaders to sign on for an improvement cycle without the ability to show them that it drives results in my, in, in my, in my estimation is a fool's errand. The right. best you can do, the best you can do then is have some programs that check the box and satisfy the, you know, people that are kicking up hay within the organization to tamp that down, which puts it in the category of a problem to be solved and just reinforces that notion. But if, if you can begin uh, to show organizations that this drives results and, and Hannah, everything you read in the last part of that vision statement is about driving results, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. It, it drives results. And so DEI drives results. And if we want to move towards a world that works better for the majority of people in it, mm-hmm. potentially all the people, but we know everybody has choices, then sustainable DEI aspirations have to be embedded into the core strategy of an organization, not a bolt-on. Yeah. Because if you can mm-hmm. bolt it on, you can unbolt it, but embed yeah. it into the core strategy of an organization. That's good. So good. I am interested to just get a little bit practical before we 100% land the plane um, around this topic and some of the work that you do, consulting and all that with organizations. I remember one of the things that you said in one of the conversations I had with you was about like just asking the question or saying to someone in the midst of conflict, in the midst of um, diversity of thought, or if there's a misunderstanding or anything, even just 
having a willingness to be open and want to learn from this. I think this is a this is a conversation that Hannah and I said, like, hey, we want to be a part of and we want uh, we think this is important and we feel clumsy and we also want to grow and want to be people who are learning. So you gave me the phrase, help me understand. Yeah. And yeah. I've come back to that a lot of times since I, I met you in the fall. And I'm wondering what other practical things just today could we start that would walk us into this being an integral part of just who we are? Because I believe that the work has to start individually. Yeah, so what are some yeah. more of those practical things? Yeah, thank you, Mackenzie. So help me understand is based on the posture, if you will, the emotional and mental posture of seeking to understand before being understood. Mm. Divisiveness, uh, being argumentative, polarization, those things come when we dig our heels in on those things that we're so wedded to and identify with and we think they're a part of our our, our identity. Yeah. If we loosen our grip on those and seek to understand, we call that perspective taking, seek to see things from someone else's point of view. Mm. So that's to help me understand. And that question is in, in a time where there is something that you truly don't understand, or you are genuinely approaching for my next point, curiosity, because yes. I really want to know, it really changes the way that you frame a question that you approach, the, the expression on your face, all that stuff changes when you're genuinely driven by curiosity. So seek to understand rather than be understood. Uh, be committed to uh, embracing curiosity. Uh, easier said than done because from the time that we probably go through our grade school experience, curiosity is discouraged. Maybe not intentionally, but it yeah. kind of starts, it kind of starts this, this, this searching and boundary pushing uh, starts kind of in kindergarten when you're encouraged not to color outside of the lines. So think, think, think of the metaphor of staying inside the lines. Lines, by the way, that someone else is going to draw for you. Yeah. And so the idea now is conformance. If you conform, then you become comfortable, right? And so, so we're right back where we started from, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to be disturbed. We don't want to make mistakes. So we're going to stay comfortable. If we're going to stay comfortable, it's best to be around like-minded people, so that our chances of erring are, are minimized, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but if, you, but if we're curious, if we're curious, and I would couple curiosity with the willingness to operate in vulnerability. Mm. I, think it's, I think it's a misconception that trust leads to vulnerability. I think it's the other way around. Yeah. I think vulnerability is the on-ramp to trust. Yeah. If somebody sees you behaving in a way that, is relatable, is familiar, yeah. then that coming close to you, right? Which we, one of the definitions of, of trust, coming close to you physically, emotionally, intellectually. Uh, so yeah, I would say seek to understand before being understood, embrace curiosity and operate in vulnerability. Mm, so good. good. Have you read Brene Brown's new book? She talks about that, the, t the vulnerability and trust and how she even says, I love how she even says in the book, like, I got this wrong for a long time. And I think it's such a beautiful example of someone who's really well known and saying I was wrong or I'm trying again. Like there are several moments in that book. Um, and so I think that just also speaks to this conversation of being someone who's willing to be teachable and willing to change your mind and think outside of what I thought was inerrant truth. 
So well, it's refreshing when the queen of vulnerability actually practices vulnerability. So, and by the way, <laughs> yes. I am so I, I am so thankful that she is is talking to a corporate audience now. Yeah. Because it is so she's 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 I don't know I'm not a I don't know a lot about Brene, but I know that she was really sort of in the in the in the self improvement kind of space mm-hmm. for quite a while, but she is really talking about leaders and leadership. So yeah. needed. Big fan. Well, I know that we are out of time. So just one last question for you. We tend to ask as we wrap up with people sometimes to say, what is one practice that is keeping you centered right now? What's something that you do to stay centered? Oh my gosh. So um, uh, Bill Loki, he, he may be a believer in meditation. Mm. Uh, meditation that leads to mindfulness and the ability to create space between my emotions and my actions. And man, I tell you, I, I'm, I'm a practitioner and will be uh, until the last grain of sand falls uh, in my hourglass. Uh, but I am really committed to uh, practicing mindfulness, self-awareness in the EQ suite, right? Mm-hmm. That leads to regulation, uh, practicing empathy. That, that keeps me living centered. So good. Dr. Ed, thank you so much. This has been such an encouraging conversation and really uh, just, I hope it encourages people to lean in in both the emotional health space and in conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, I I thank you for creating such a psychologically safe environment for us to be able to kind of fumble and go go first and have these conversations. And I hope that for listeners, it does the same, uh, that they can therefore have these conversations in their own life, because that's where the magic happens. Well, it's been my pleasure. Remember, you two are doing great work, you and your colleagues. Keep doing it and um, trust the process. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call one 800 341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.